0: Today I'm joined by Kevin Nope and Zach Seely. Zach acquired a healthcare software company called FSI in late 2020, with technical diligence help from Kevin, a software due diligence advisor and trilogy operating executive. Our conversation doesn't discuss the attractiveness of software as an investment, which it very much is, but rather on how to properly diligence software and operate and improve the business once acquired. We review common technical issues in software companies, how much technical debt is acceptable, Zach's experience in diligence and operating improvements at FSI, and constructing a capable team to move a software business forward. This episode is the fifth in our series, The Trilogy Search Partners, where we share stories and insights from talented entrepreneurs and investors from around the traditional search fund community. To introduce the guests in our fifth episode, I'm joined by Aaron Perrine and Scott Alderman, both partners at Trilogy to introduce today's guests, Zach Seeley and Kevin Nope. Technical diligence of software companies is a really specific topic. I would love to know what made you both really excited for this topic for a podcast episode.
1: There are a few reasons we thought this would be a useful podcast. Uh, Searchers are acquiring a lot of software companies today. And I would say seven or eight years ago, it was unusual for a searcher who didn't come from the software industry to target software companies. But today, software represents perhaps a third of the acquisition activity in the search fund community. And we observe a few common elements with software companies that are targeted by search fund entrepreneurs. Often the searcher is acquiring the business from the founder, who is the architect and original developer of the software. And that person is looking to exit the business so that knowledge base may be going away as, as the, the founder exits. And while technical debt is a fact of life in software, there are common themes we see over and over again. And you know, some types of technical debt are more problematic than others. And very often the searcher who's stepping in to lead the company doesn't have a software or particularly technical background. And as a result, we think it's imperative to have a pro in your camp who can help you assess
0: what you're acquiring. Yeah, and Alex, as Kevin explains, We think the purpose of tech due diligence isn't just to identify issues you should walk away from. It's also to help understand what some of the key technical priorities will need to be uh, when you step into the CEO role. We've always appreciated Kevin's nuanced approach to identifying showstoppers versus things we all need to be aware of. And we see companies benefit from his expertise long after the initial technical diligence report uh, has been issued. We also think Zach is just a great example of an entrepreneur who came into his operating role with great strengths, one of which is an ability to learn where his own gaps are and where he needs to find great partners. And the FSI story just continues to be really exciting. Don't miss Kevin's description of the Strangler Fig theory of software development as, as you get into uh, some of the, the the great detail in this episode. Yeah, there's a lot of great concepts in this conversation. So yeah, thanks for putting it together. This is a fun one. To learn more about Trilogy Search Partners, Please reach out via their website at trilogy-search.com. I also want to thank our other three sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood and Strong, and Oberly Risk Strategies. And now to our episode with Zach and Kevin. It's good to see you both on the on the podcast. I'm glad Aaron was able to introduce us. Zach, I think a good place to start to kick off the episode is to hear about your FSI experience starting at the acquisition point. It sounds like it was a deal you kind of came in while it was in progress. And would love to hear about how that came together, and then how Kevin got looped in into due diligence and technical analysis and all this other stuff. But would love to start with the acquisition point, kind of, and go from there.
2: Sure. So FSI is a SaaS business focused on the healthcare space. We we serve hospitals across the U.S. along managed maintenance, asset, and work order management. It's a twenty year old business, founded and run by a single individual with a lot of background in the managed maintenance space and within healthcare. And that's right. I I came into it kind of midstream, but what was really exciting was this was a business with exceptional product market fit. It had been in business, a long track record had been in business for 20 years and had a growing customer base And was sort of poised to grow and scale in a way that just was not the strategic focus of the business in in the past under the owner and operator. And there were a number of market dynamics that also kind of made it very interesting and and exciting. But I, I came into it, I was introduced to the founder and to early on about six months before we closed the actual acquisition. And we had signed an LOI Outlining the the general terms, and we're quickly moving forward with uh, due diligence to really understand everything from quality of earnings and marketing to the technology and kind of everything in between. And along that process, I was introduced to Kevin, who works closely with one of my main investors in this acquisition to help really better understand the technology, the tech team. And uh, where there could be potential strengths and gaps uh, along those dimensions.
0: So in looking at the due diligence picture for FSI, it sounds like there's a lot of, you know, probably commonalities across companies from a wide variety of industries in terms of examining, you know, organizational structure, finances, marketing plans. But the technical side is can become very specific and very detail oriented. Would love to hear how you incorporated Kevin into that process and what 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 is that type what does that diligence look like from a very technical perspective.
2: I'll let Kevin dive into kind of the the deeper technical aspect. You know, my background is in technology, but from a business standpoint, I don't have an engineering degree or I haven't worked within product organizations or anything like that. And so Kevin really led our technical due diligence uh, across the board. I'd say at, at the highest level, you know, what we really wanted to understand was where the gaps potentially were in the product, how long-term scalable it was, level of tech debt that we had. And then on the other side, what did the technology and product leadership look like? What were the strengths and capabilities of the team, the dynamics of the team? And you know what would we need to worry about across both of those dimensions on on day one? Never mind, kind of day one thousand of, of acquiring the business and, and operating it.
0: Kevin, I think it would be helpful to prior to diving into FSI, just outlining your general process for examining the technical side of software companies. What does that process from end to end look like for you? And then how did you take that process and apply it to FSI?
3: Yeah, we usually start out with just a tech diligence questionnaire that covers about 10 aspects of a diligence. So we want to talk about the team, the product, its design and architecture, about scalability, about security, you know, talk about the code base, the code quality, you know, organization comments, the database and data structures, the general software development lifecycle, how do they actually build their software? The implementation process, how hard is it to kind of get the software out there? You know how's project management done? you know who decides what gets built? and finally and we talk about the i p you know is what what have you got in terms of patents or has everything been you know properly assigned? So I sent out a uh, just a questionnaire for the technical team at the target company to answer, and then we'll get together and do usually a one to two hour you know a walkthrough of their answers. And, you know, assuming the company is not actually hiding anything and they've been forthright and verbose in their answers, usually at that point in that initial phone call, I've got a pretty good idea if these people know what they're doing, if they know how to write software, you know, if they're on a modern stack and, and, you know, have a good team. So usually after that, I have a pretty good idea to share with the searchers that, you know, this is, this is looking pretty good or no run away from these guys at this point. And that's rare, but I have had a few where it was like, you know, don't touch these people with a ten foot pole. So we'll, we'll do that, and usually about that at that point, I can give a pretty good idea of like a statement of work of how how long I think the diligence could probably take and how many things I'm going to need to deep dive on. And then I do a really really thorough and sometimes this is multiple hours a demo of the product. I mean, you really can't go too deep on a product until you've seen like every corner of it and get a really good sense of of how it works. And after the demo, it's just a series of deep dives. With the idea that we're just verifying what they actually shared in the initial questionnaire and like any other skeletons, you know, buried that they, they didn't bring up. And used to be I would go on site pre COVID, I would go on site and, you know, and do most of those in conference rooms and, you know, meet everybody in conference rooms. You know, nowadays it's, it's zoom for the most part, like, like everything else in, in business. And, you know, I'll audit what I can get access to. As Zach mentioned, there are companies that are real cagey about, you know, giving me access to source code or allowing me to, you know, you know, even have direct access to the application unfettered. So I'll do whatever audits I can of the the code and and the environment. And then finally, I, I usually and we're. Trilogy now is who I work with most is doing this on most of our deals. We'll set up a, a full security audit. I'm not personally a security professional, so we'll set up a, a full security audit penetration test with people that really know what they're doing. And you know, that's kind of how it plays out.
0: What are the most common reasons that you'll go back to searchers and say, don't touch this company with a 10-foot pole? What, what, turns, what turns companies away the most?
3: Okay. Well, usually it's around the software development lifecycle. I've had a lot more companies than you would think that like they didn't believe in source code control. I had one company that had seventy servers serving their customers and the way they wrote software was they would literally log into the server and in real time, you know, type around making changes for a given customer with like no source control whatsoever. And it's like, you know, that kind of thing is really, really hard to get over. Once in a while it's a product is built in a language that is no longer supported and it's going to be really hard to find people that can develop in it. So, sort of the you know, tech stack choices. One of the funniest ones where I said to walk away is like it turned out the company that was selling didn't actually own the software. They had hired contractors to build them, contractors never assigned the software. And I was like, you're not buying what you think you're buying here. So, you know, things like that. You know, it, some companies are a bit of a house of cards and it's a little bit binary because you know there are there are there are deals out there where the deal is the technology, and there's a lot of deals out there where the deal is really not the technology. It's just sort of like a supporting piece of the deal. And you know if the if the if it's a great business that just happens to have pretty poorly executed software, that can be fixed. If it's a software business and it's really you know poorly designed and executed, that's really hard to fix.
0: Yeah, what's your perspective on technical debt? And when looking at FSI, what sorts of technical debt or challenges broadly did you encounter?
3: Actually, FSI was one of the better companies I've evaluated. They knew what they were doing. They had you know, chosen pretty good modern stack. The uh, software development lifecycle was quite good. They had a quite a good team there. Um, the only things really, I think, if I can remember, I should have re- reread my <laughs> report for them. I, I remember that they were very light on testing, which we see in almost every search deal I do. And, you know, being light on on testing is, uh, is a lot of work because, you know, it is like one of the keys to hitting really good velocity and sort of, you know, being a world-class engineering environment. So getting caught up, getting caught up on know, testing and testing infrastructure. I think they were a little bit light on automation in general. You know, a lot of things were still being kind of pushed around manually in there, which again is not unusual in companies that have been been running for a while. So, for the most part, I think they were actually pretty good. The vast majority of the deals, in fact, every deal, you know, FSA, like I said, was at the top. There was only like one other company I've ever looked at that didn't have like a lot of technical debt. And usually a lot of these businesses, you know, they've been around a long time. So, you know, you'll find companies that have been writing their software for 20 years, you know, 10 years. And, you know, what was the best way to write software and the best tooling from 10 or 20 years ago is not necessarily how you want to be doing it today. So a lot of times, you know, it's just something you have to get in there and deal with. And it's just kind of a part of life and, you know, buying companies that are going concerns at least.
2: I remember... Kevin's report and, and our discussions through the process and, on the due diligence side. And one thing actually that gave me the most confidence is Kevin's feedback around the team culture and the sort of team dynamics and knowing that, listen, there's always going to be tech debt. There's always going to be competing priorities. It's important to have good processes. You can always mature those processes in, in an evolving company and industry landscape. You're, you're going to have to make a lot of changes regardless. But knowing that we were in a good spot was great. But what gave me the, best, the most confidence was this is a team that worked well together, liked working with each other, in many cases had been working with each other for a long time. And that sort of organizational dynamic was super important to me to have a lot of trust and confidence that whatever gaps and, and challenges, priorities that we had to wrestle with moving forward, uh, we could tackle those because we had the right, you know, a lot of the right people in place
0: and so when looking at the different technical challenges that fsi was encountering what did you do in terms of either structuring your your deal or after after acquiring you know building a team what sorts of things did you do to adjust for those challenges
2: in terms of structuring the particular deal there like kevin said there fsi was was in a relatively mature state so there weren't a ton of gaps that really needed to be addressed from a deal points perspective so so with that with that said we, we didn't do it didn't come into sort of the negotiations in a significant way at all since taking over and operating the company things changed a lot we've changed out our development leader we have expanded the team quite a bit and you're always going to wrestle with competing priorities on the development side, and that's one thing that I've kind of—I'd fooled myself that that we were in in a, you know a really mature spot, so we'd got kind of gotten this you know figured out. Every company across the spectrum deals with having more work than the team to, to be able to execute on it, and really having to make really hard decisions. I'd say one of the pieces of confidence was that I had in this team and in what they were doing was it actually wasn't my first priority to, to make a lot of changes early on. That was my time and focus was really steered towards sales and marketing and, and building up other parts of the organization that weren't as mature, but we're actually going through really exciting process right now to restate and redefine our product vision and strategy and think about team organization and dynamics in order to execute along that. And so it's, it's come back full circle, and after we kind of solve these problems, we'll go on and look at the next opportunity within the organization to keep moving forward and, and maturing.
0: And how did you, when you, when you were looking at the different projects from a technical perspective that FSI needed to work on, some being product improvements, some being legacy improvements or technical debt to resolve? How did you kind of how did you make the decision which project to choose? What was your process for thinking through? the right priority to focus on. And then and then Kevin, after after Zach shares, I'd love to hear how you view the two, technical debt and product development and what you advise searchers do for the most part. But Zach would love to hear the FSI perspective.
2: Yeah, what I mean, one of the most helpful things coming out of actually the due diligence is Kevin's report on not just the state, but also what he thought that the priorities would be once I stepped into the operating role. And things around security and performance immediately go up on the list. And so those are areas that we tackled and where we had kind of outstanding questions from the acquisition and due diligence phase. Those were areas that we immediately devoted resources or brought in outside consultants to to help us tackle. So that was, that was kind of the immediate push. You know, in the first sort of 100 days, six months of the acquisition, it was really around First of all, not breaking anything, not making too many dramatic products or other sort of changes that were going to kind of take us out of our steady state and business as usual. So, really thinking around tech debt and, and other incremental improvements that we could make. And then, with more experience, really having a better understanding, a lot more discussions with current and future customers, understanding the sales cycle, etc. we started to weave in more future development priorities into our product roadmap and that prioritization matrix and how we sort those things out is is still something in flux that we're thinking a lot about and how how we continue to try to make those you know the best decisions and organize a company and organize our teams in order to execute around those priorities.
3: Yeah, yeah, I think it's all a matter of like the degree. There have been companies out there where literally if we didn't fix the system fairly soon You know, it was going to collapse. And I think there are a subset of sellers out there that like they're selling because they know they built a house of cards and they want to get out of it. And there are, there are places where, you know, you don't want to take that on. And there's places where it's like, yeah, this is, this is not scaling. It's not great, but it's fixable. You know, we get in and and look at how, so it's all a degree of sort of, it's all a matter of degree of how bad things are. You know, are we just looking at out of date development tools? Are we looking at like a really bad, code base, you know, like we talked about earlier, you know, what's their testing, what's their focus on security, documentation, automation, things like that. You know, a related thing is it's fairly common in in search deals to like have a situation where the founder or a couple of founders themselves wrote the code. And, you know, they're now selling because they want to go and like have a life. And so how do we quickly get the, like the one or two experts in this entire infrastructure, you know, get that, get all that knowledge transferred over to, over to other people. You know, we also see a lot of kind of very wacky hosting environments, which can add an extra, you know, layer of complexity. They're at, you know, they're either on-premise software or they add a very boutique hosting environment. So, you know, you've got a lot of pieces that you have to get in there and move at once. And it's a great thought leader in, in software development named Martin Fowler. And he coined a concept called the strangler fig tree pattern, which is based on like a tree in Australia where like a fig tree just grows on the original tree. And like over years and years and years, it like kills the tree inside and it's now its own tree. So one of the things that we look at when we're looking at like how are we going to deal with code with tech debt and get these code bases kind of shored up is can we like carve off pieces of, you know, the original system and like replace you know, individual parts of it one at a time and kind of a long rolling rewrite, a long rolling refactor. It's almost always a terrible idea to say, oh, let's just come in and rewrite this system from scratch. You want to look at like little pieces you can pull off and, you know, we can fix this module. Maybe it's not performing well. We can fix that module in isolation of all of the others. So, you know, it's a matter of like how much degree you have. I mean, we always want new features and to push things forward. But, you know, technical debt is kind of like the shortcuts that you took to get where you are now. That's really kind of blocking you from being able to like hit a good velocity on these new features. And sooner or later, you do have to address it. So, you know, you you can't hide from it unless you have a... I have seen a couple of deals where, you know, the software was not great, but all the the team really wanted to do was like increase the market share without adding adding a whole lot of features. So all we really had to think to do is like, how do we make this scale rather than, you know, how do we like fix everything? So, you know, I think it's all pretty, you know, pretty dependent on what the sort of the driving forces for wanting to close this deal are.
0: And when you're looking at these, software companies, what sorts of things need to be addressed before an acquisition is made that that can't wait and maybe are less fixable and need to be addressed and discussed?
3: I haven't seen a lot of of sellers that actually wanted to do a whole lot before a deal would close. If If we find that they have not had any sort of a security component of their software development lifecycle, we will almost always say we need a, a security audit pending closure because if they just haven't paid attention, the last thing in the world you want to do is to, you know, put up a bunch of money for a company and two weeks later, you know, they're ransomware or they've been they've been hacked. So often we will make a security audit conditional closing, unless they've recently had one from a reputable firm that, you know, really went through their system in detail you know just as a side thing we were talking about ip and and you know having full assignments obviously you can't close the deal until you're sure that you know everybody that's worked on the software has fully assigned their ip rights and you know any contractors that you're using are work for hire and that you know you own the software so those are those are sort of the main things i I haven't had anything else where i've come in and said you know change this way you're you're running the business and demonstrate that you can do that before we're ready to close this deal You know, if there's things that are that are that important, usually it'll be a a blocker to proceeding on the deal anyway.
0: And and Zach, you kind of alluded a little bit to it, but oftentimes there are organizational gaps that need to be filled over time, maybe not immediately day one. But when you came into FSI and looked at the the team you had, what sorts of gaps did you feel like you could improve on and needed to be a focus over that first kind of year, year and a half or so?
2: Absolutely, and and what's interesting is those gaps may not be apparent in the sort of current structure because oftentimes when you make the acquisition, your goals and strategy may change or shift or evolve, and so the gaps may kind of evolve or, or you may uncover those gaps over time. With FSI, we we knew just from a sales and marketing standpoint. Uh, especially on the leadership side, that was a huge area that we needed to invest in. And uh, for a lot of good reasons, it wasn't the primary focus of um, the founder's dollar investment. He was really good at sales and marketing, so he just did a lot of that work himself. But he hadn't built a deep bench strength in sales and marketing, and and they had not devoted a lot of resources, especially on the marketing side. So uh, right off the bat, we knew we needed to do that. And spend our time there. The, the other area of focus wasn't quite on the organizational side, but it was on the internal tools and software side. We used our own, what's called CMMS, computerized managed maintenance software, as our CRM, as our development tracking tool, as our customer support tool, in some cases as our ER, uh, ERP, um, etc. There's kind of a nice thing about eating your own dog food, as the expression goes. There's also something about you know using non-purpose-built software to run a lot of disparate internal processes and, and just uh, departments and functions and, and that sort of thing. And so that was a huge area of focus that basically touched every single team was rolling out purpose-built software and tools in order to help facilitate that scale. And that's something that you know Kevin and I talked about quite a bit is, is our, our dev team used our, our product as their Development tracking tools without kind of the quintessential development metrics and process and you know other elements that are kind of table stakes. And just one other interesting aspect about that, like even if you find a a way to make it work, uh, you know it it wasn't purpose built for that for that role. So we were obviously missing something. It's also really hard or awkward to recruit people when they ask kind of what development software we use and how we how you know how we track that and what metrics were we for were we looking at? We kind of had to tell them a story about how we used our own software and why, why we did, and why we continued to do it, et, et cetera. So, the, you know, that that was a big gap that we recognized early on, and, and an area that took twelve months or more to to really mature and, and change across the organ- across the different levels of the organization.
0: And how did you go about evaluating the technical team at FSI? from a prior to close where maybe your contact with the team is much more limited, of course, before acquiring the company?
2: Yeah. So in our case, we, we didn't have sort of full access to, to the team. We used Kevin uh, not just to perform the due diligence, but to sort of meet the team under kind of the guise of an insurance audit, I think is kind of how we went about it. Obviously with the full buy-in of the seller and, and, you know, that's how we kind of went through it. So I I relied on, on Kevin's discussions and evaluation of the team. Again, you know, he came back with a lot of positive things to say, not just about the individuals that he had met, but also about the sort of team dynamics, which again, gave me a lot of confidence and excitement around that. You know, and then after we closed the acquisition, you know, trying to put in both Sort of hard quantitative metrics in place across the entire organization, not just around development, to really understand productivity and effectiveness and those types of things, and you know rely on team leaders to make sure that they felt that they had you know the best team that they needed to execute around our strategic goals.
0: And Kevin, what kind of questions do you ask folks on the technical teams to evaluate whether uh, evaluate just raw talent and then ability to? make the improvements that you think are important for that company to make over the coming, coming years.
3: Yeah, FSI was unusual in that they did have a a very good engineering leader who sort of like knew how to write software and to run a software team. So, you know, that one was easier than a lot of them now in that particular case. I didn't get an opportunity to interview all the different members of the team because the the seller wanted to keep this much more private. So I spent, you know, a lot of time with their their engineering leader and you know, a couple other people that I did have access to, kind of cross-referencing and you know, walking through the members of the team. So, you know, when I do have full access, you know, what I like to focus on is, you know, the the skill set, you know, kind of how how siloed are the individuals and what's their skill set talk a lot about morale and, you know, which ones might be a flight risk, you know, and you know, focus on how can we, you know, kind of do this transition without, you know, spooking anybody and, and losing anybody in a, in a regrettable attrition. The, you know, one of the things that I often look for for software engineers is a lot of times in search deals specifically, you have, you have people that have been very insular. They've been the developer for that company and I'll see quite often 8, 10, 12 years, which is crazy long you know, in most software companies and they have gotten very, very comfortable. And if I talk about, well, how do you like keep up with the market and keep up with tech? They don't. And, you know, it's it's evidenced by the fact that they're running on like an ancient version of PHP or they're running, you know, coding in visual basic or some, you know, really archaic language. So I do look for the ones that, you know, get out, I'll, I'll ask about, and again, pre COVID, this was a bit bigger indicator is, you know, do you go out to meetups? Do you do professional development organizations? How do you keep up with the, with, you know, kind of changes in software development life cycles and just try and figure out, you know, if they see software engineering as a craft and they're the kind of people that are, you know, reading technical blogs and, you know, going to meetups virtual or, or in person, try and get a real good sense of the individuals and, you know, which ones with good mentoring, you know, could quickly like learn how to do the things they haven't been doing and we can level them all up versus the ones that are just kind of set in their ways. And then, you know, another interesting indicator is always the diversity, you know, if it's a bunch of very similar doofusy old white guys like me, it's probably a more insular environment than if they have a, a diverse team, you know, they're not out kind of competing, you know, search deals do have a bit of a handicap in that they rarely will have really good employee stock option plans. So, you know, you have to also filter for the fact that the packages that, that, you know, a a search deal, for example, can offer, you know, right out of the gate, maybe, you know, less kind of appealing to sort of, you know, world-class engineers out there. But, you know, those are mostly the things I look at as well as, you know, if I have full access. You can look at their pull requests and whatever their, you know, their source code tool is or their their contributions to the overall code base and get a good sense of like, this person seems to be doing, you know, 80% of the work and these three, you know, are doing the other 20. What's going on here?
0: Yeah. How do you evaluate the kind of key technical or key engineer risk where maybe there's one person in particular who was instrumental in one, one module or one crucial piece of, of your software, how do you kind of evaluate where that risk lies and then mitigating it through training the rest of the team or helping that person share or, or something else? Where do, how do you go about looking for that, that answer?
3: yeah you know the danger, and you know what I do see a lot is when the developers are the founders and they've also been sort of like gatekeepers they really don't share you know we have some I've seen some deals where you know so and so you know wrote the entire system and is you know one of the owners or the the founders and they've been a one person band you know the whole time, so at that point it's a matter of you know. How quickly could we get, you know, an equivalently senior person into the organization and start, you know, doing cross-training? And what's what's the sort of the the engineer who's like holding on to all of the, you know, key pieces of code? What's his or her motivations to like let somebody in and and help? Are they going to, you know, post-close? Are they still going to drag their feet about that? So it is something that you really have to balance out you know, I think every software company has problems with, you know, kind of knowledge concentration. So it's not necessarily um, unique to this space at all, but, you know, immediately looking at, you know, again, this is one of the things we're looking at when we're looking at the skill sets. Okay. These people only have, you know, one front end developer. And of course that person's, you know, done all of the front end work. So now we had to figure out how to de-risk being set on that person. If there's only one, you know, sort of person that's doing database work and nobody else knows how to do it. So a lot of it is just de-risking. And I think one of the things that we need to look at, you know, as we're closing is like a real gut check on on who's a flight risk and how big of a problem is this likely to be. Companies do bandy around kind of like, you know, we're a we're a family. We have kind of a family culture here. They were one where it was pretty clear that 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 was a bunch of people who really like working together. And, you know, through the transition was not going to be you know, a bunch of people just, you know, getting spooked and taking off. You know, one problem we have is that quite often the engineering leadership team in a given company is really not up to kind of taking that company to the next level. You know, a lot of people are buying a company and they say, oh, this is really, really interesting. And, you know, I'm going to drop in and I'm awesome and I'm going to like pour gasoline on the fire and we're going to just blow this thing up. Well, if you know, if you're buying a company that's been underperforming up to this point, and that's one of the things that makes it an appealing deal to think that just because an MBA shows up, suddenly the engineering team is going to you know, like know what to do that day is a bad plan. So quite often, yeah, and we do need to bring in an engineering manager that knows how to uh, write software. And that has to be someone with, you know, very, very high EQ because you don't want to spook the engineering team with, you know, here comes a big culture change you know a new sheriff in town so trying to get somebody on board and it, it's a little bit binary i find with teams there's there's teams break down two different ways one way they break down is very very insular group and they've been doing it this way forever and they're very comfortable in their 10 to 4 you know you know drop in do some coding call it a night kind of cycle and don't really see a need to change don't understand The value in things like automation and tests and a lot of modern software practices and the other one the other thing that i see a lot is teams that is really really hungry to know how to do it all right they've never had any you know maybe they haven't had any process up to now they're just kind of you know throwing stuff against a wall and and seeing what sticks and you come in and say you know we're gonna we're gonna put these processes in and we're gonna start using bug-tracking software. We're going to try and tr- start tracking our work. We're going to start writing tests. In some cases, you know, they're not doing any variation of Agile or Scrum or Kanban or XP or whatever model fits their, their team size and team composition well. So, and, and quite often, we put in there and they're like, this is awesome. I finally know what I'm supposed to be working on. I finally know that I'm, this are, these are the metrics I'm going to be measured on. I can finally understand where the product is going and what we're going to work on next. So, you know, If you find a first case, you almost, almost always have to figure out a way to, you know, drop some senior developers in there along with new engineering management. The second case, it might just be, you know, an engineering manager or Scrum master. You know, people that get some people in that kind of can just like steer the people and let you know, kind of level up from the inside.
0: And Zach, when you were getting into the business, what sorts of like what? Two to three decisions and changes did you make on the technical team to start organizing and and getting that that team prepared to make further changes and growth with the system?
2: A couple of things come to mind. You know, one is just around work intake and making sure that the process is broadly understood both within the development team but also across the rest of the organization. Kind of. Being a sort of smaller software company, even one that had grown, you know, quite a bit over its time, there was this feeling where I've worked with this person for for a long time. So when I've got a question, I'm going to tap them on the shoulder and kind of disrupt what they're doing and ask them to do me this favor and weigh in on something or can you look at this, etc. And it exacerbated a lot of other challenges and competing priorities for our development team. And so making sure that we had the right work intake, which not only streamlines the, the process and make sure that you know there's prioritization steps and, and peop- there isn't a ton of context switching and other sort of traditional work waste type behaviors, but it also allows you to track and show over time how that is changing, increasing, decreasing, whatever, staying the same, which helps kind of give evidence for what people are already feeling. And so making sure that we had a data component to managing either frustrations or challenges and and those types of things. And it like the primary area that comes to mind is, is really around work intake. The second thing and something that we're still trying to do and trying to expand is getting everybody, but but certainly it applies to the development team out of The development team for a little while. I mean, everybody works in collaboration with with everybody else or with a lot of other teams. And especially in this remote first environment, and FSI was remote prior to the pandemic. So we've been dealing with kind of the challenge of not being co-located for for quite a long time. But too often, while you're trading work back and forth, or asking questions on an email and getting part of a response, etc., there is just there's really limited understanding and appreciation of what your colleagues are doing and the frustrations that they have, or how they're wrestling with other factors and that you're not seeing firsthand. And so, making sure that our team and certainly the development team, especially with some of the folks around support and level two support and even the sales cycle, our development team is getting that exposure, sitting with those other groups in order to both develop stronger bonds with their colleagues to get a better appreciation of customer questions or issues or challenges. And to build just more general awareness is, is super important. We've got a developer who just started this week, and they're spending all of their second week shadowing support in order to just get a better sense of the questions that come in, the challenges that are coming in, and those those sorts of things. So that cross-pollination is something that I think is especially Challenging in this remote first environment that most companies, I'm sure, are wrestling with. It's it's an area that every time we've made a decision to make a little bit of progress, it's actually been quite profound as to the excitement, interest, and I'm not sure the right word. It's sort of like there's just a general acceptance of you know there's more to kind of the the issues that that everybody faces than just what we see in our our day to day job. One of my favorite stories is we had our agile manager who had been with the company for nine years and our head of customer support who had also been with the company for nine years. And we did a strategic goal-setting session after the first quarter of this year where we brought a bunch of people together in Pittsburgh. And these are two women who work with each other day in and day out, sometimes on the phone or on answering emails many times a day, who had never met in person in nine years. And just that simple human human connection, I think, adds a new dimension to to any relationship. And so we try not to forget that that's a really important part of building a culture and an organization across all the different functional areas uh, that we need to invest in and spend time on. Because yeah, you know, existing and growing, especially in competitive environments, is hard enough. Trying to do that without having a good sense of... You know who we are as a collective organization makes it even even tougher. So the good old fashioned get together in person, do social stuff in addition to you know hard work is all really really important. And we try and be really thoughtful about how we how we get folks together and how often we do that. And quite frankly, we haven't been doing it as much as we want to. It's kind of a work in progress.
0: One thing you mentioned there was. What sounds like trying to make work more public and available and transparent so the rest of your team knows the different projects that the rest of the company is working on and the progress within each of those, which, of course, ties into remote work because not everyone can be in person together. What sorts of processes and maybe systems, Dave, have you set up to make work more public and transparent at FSI?
2: Yeah. So that sort of transparency aspect is something we're thinking a lot about and trying to roll out. So A, it's publishing a lot more information than we had in the past. So things like high-level financial results and goals, you know, slides or other output from board discussions, trying to bring that back into all-hands discussions and talk about the the context around it, why it's important, how we did against how we thought we were going to do those sorts of things. Establishing overall organization and team by team metrics is is really important, and tracking those in a very public way. You know, in an organization that doesn't normally do that, a lot of the initial reaction is, "You're going to show me where I'm, where my gaps are, where the teams' gaps are, and where we're going to fail." And I think turning it on its head and saying like I want to be everybody's biggest cheerleader and celebrate all of our successes but unless we know what our goals are we don't know whether we're succeeding and it's really hard to throw an authentic celebration and you know authent- authentically congratulate one another if we don't set goals sometimes really ambitious goals and then and then hold ourselves accountable to meet those so those elements are really important i think that the technology that you use and the channels that you use, we were and still continue to be in many cases overly reliant on email, which is not a collaborative channel for discussion. It is a it's a statement that can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. So if you don't if you aren't getting on a Zoom call with your camera on and talking, obviously if you can meet in person, that's even better. But if you're not getting on a video call having a chat function where it's much more of a a dynamic conversation, a call and response. We're trying to promote those, those channels much more than sending an email that's complicated and has a lot of, you know, a lot of different types of information. And it's hard for various people, especially if you're copying five or six people to weigh in and get the, get the input that you need in order to keep moving forward. So it's, it's a number of different things. And from the CEO's standpoint, you kind of got to balance What am I kind of dictating that we do and what what kind of practices do we build authentically as an organization that resonate with people that people are going to use and find the value in? And there's always a give and take. Sometimes you need an executive leadership to just say, hey, here's here's how this is going to work moving forward. And sometimes you want a much more authentic uh, buy-in to some of these channels or tools or goals and metrics and that sort of thing.
0: And one thing we haven't discussed on or we haven't touched on too deeply that we've we've mentioned here and there is outsourcing versus having your development team in-house. Kevin, I imagine there's different sets of tasks that are suitable for each side of the outsourcing versus insourcing. How do you kind of think through which tasks or which you know, positions work best outsource versus insource? And is there one direction that you feel CEOs should try to lean
3: towards? A lot of it depends on what the customer, the company has done historically. I have done a couple of diligence deals where the company had a fully remote development team—you know, India or Pakistan—and their their development developers are are fully remote and. That does bring some interesting challenges in tech diligence because, you know, we want to understand, are they, you know, are they a viable going concern? Are you their only customer? You know, are they, are you getting like the same people over years or are they switching people around on you a lot and kind of what are the economics of it? You know, what are you paying? And also, you know, if you use a firm, you know, an outsource firm to like do the vast majority of your software engineering are, how much are you actually, how much more are you additionally spending to like get them good specs and get them good, you know, design documents and to sort of manage them? I do think, you know, when we talk about outsourcing, there's, there's kind of two different approaches. And, and one is staff augmentation, which I think is a phenomenal way to bring, you know, more developers into an organization where you hire someone. And for all intents and purposes, you know, and now that we're all remote or most companies are remote, they're just another developer. They just happen to be overseas. And we've been having great luck with it, especially down in South America, Colombia, Argentina, Brazil are doing some, you know, just have some amazing technical colleges and there's some great people out there. Problem that we're seeing a little bit is that, you know, globally, developer salaries are, are equalizing more than you would think. So, you know, really good, really senior developers. You could be in Mexico City, you could be in Argentina, Colombia. They kind of, people are like figuring out what they can make now. And I'm seeing prices for, you know, certain classes of developers equalize with what you would pay here. There's still, still a pretty great discount on what you would pay here. As far as like piece work, like I just want to have the front end or I just want this sort of backend development thing offshored, there are a lot of considerations you have to take in because you know you you might save money on the you know the, the software engineer labor costs, but you also need to spend a lot more time on on management, on design, on you know giving really really good direction the The companies I've seen that are that are really successful with it you know are big enough that they have people that are dedicated to this, often people that are from the culture or even on the ground in the countries that they're working with. So you know it is not anything to be taken you know lightly if you want to just just outsource and you know if you're a if you do buy a company where you know the entire software team is overseas you know you just have to think about your comfort level with that and you know what I would usually recommend is you know on any significant size deal get a couple technical people at least so you know you're not you know lone founder who has to take all of their information from a representation, a representative of this external company. You know, you have your own people that understand software, can read the code, can, you know, make sure that tests are being done to make sure, you know, can audit things. It's still a great way to do it. You know, personally, I'm always more comfortable, you know, over my career I've been more comfortable with having my own developers. You know, and again, they might be remote developers in a staff augmentation model, but just, you know, it's just like your comfort level for dealing with you know, having an intermediary between you and the, the sort of code base.
0: Is it common for software companies to offer some outsourced services like, or some sort of budget for outsourced services to developers just to make their life and processes a little bit easier? Like there's a company I, I I know that gives all of their technical folks like $250, $500 a month to Upwork. Like they just get this budget that they get to use however they want. Have you... Have you seen examples like that where the in-source team is using some sort of outsource service to take care of maybe some more like menial tasks that allow them to focus on kind of higher level work?
3: Not in that model. That's actually really interesting. I do see things where there will be chunks. Like, you know, if you look at a QA operation, a big part of what, you know, modern QA does is, is pure regression testing. You take a test matrix, which outlines, you know, all of the things, you know, like the happy path through the program that we want somebody to sit down at a computer and, you know, click away on outsourcing something like that to a much lower cost set of QA engineers. And there's some great organizations. And again, this is great for the Philippines and, and India and, and Pakistan have some, some great just where it's just like, here's the test case. It's rather binary, you know, either it worked or it didn't. And if it didn't work, you're documenting what didn't work. I've not seen uh situations where, an engineering manager says we're just going to like kick this this work out. That, that that's really interesting, but I haven't actually come across that. You know, I do see some things. There are systems like you know Mechanical Turk and Take Five where you can like send particularly menial jobs out and get them back. And I imagine in like if you're an AI or ML company where you're just training models, you know, maybe you're doing that sort of thing quite a bit. I've seen companies like you could go get like one particular job position on on upwork. upwork Like let's say you're moving to a new technology platform. You have nobody in your organization that knows Kubernetes. You need somebody to set it up for you. Go grab somebody off upwork for you know a couple month engagement. That's kind of the same as finding any good contracting firm that can drop a person in that's a subject matter expert.
0: Building on teams just a little bit further when you're now that you have maybe a good grasp of the, you know, characteristics of your technical team, how do you evaluate if work is accomplished at the level that it should be? Like, how do you kind of measure capacity for your team and evaluate whether they're they're using you're, they're utilizing capacity properly or if if there's some underperformance areas of improvement?
3: Yeah, it, that depends a lot on the size and kind of the the you know talent level of the engineering organization you know done right you know agile and scrum there's a lot of metrics you can look at around you know velocity and and burn down and hitting their estimates you know is a team hitting their estimates and what's the customer value looking like you know are the customers happy with the product or are you delivering something that is high quality and is you know kind of nailing the features the custom the customers are interested in quite often in the in smaller deals you know you could have a two, three four or five person team, and a lot of like those big sort of measurements and 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 metrics really are are not all that useful so i never I never looked down on what we call management by walking around you know if you have a really small team and you've got a technical manager that is able to you know read code and understand bugs and blockers and you know design and architecture you know he or she should be able to through participating in design reviews participating in code reviews participating in you know demo day if you're doing sprints you know whoever your engineering manager is should be able to have a pretty good sense of who's pulling their weight and who's not and you know i see that fairly commonly in the deals i look at up to like 8 and 10 developers is that like they just talk a lot and you know sometimes i'm always like surprised it's like what do you mean you don't do sprints what do you mean you don't do any of the agile ceremonies and it's just they're on slack or on on teams or whatever all the time they talk they have enough organization that they're writing what they need to be writing quite often there is like one or two personalities in that sort of environment that is sort of like just mastered the product understands the customers understands the space and can say you do this and you do that And it's very successful. So I I think it has a lot to do with the sort of the scale of the organization. And when you're talking to the sellers, if you're buying a team, you know, it's pretty easy to say, well, you know, our team is, is great, but yeah, we don't, we don't hit our delivery dates and, you know, we've missed this thing and we we've missed this milestone. We've missed that milestone. And it's like, well, then from that standpoint, your team's not all that great. They have some work to do to be able to, you know, meet their commitments and deliver quality software. You know, again, it's it kind of depends, but if you have a you know, you can have a small team without a whole lot of process that is quite effective. And you can have a big team with with great process that isn't. So it's just, you know, it's it's sort of not one size fits all. I wanna
0: finish our conversation with a little bit about pricing. I personally find pricing just an interesting topic in any industry, but especially in software. I would love to hear Zach, from you, like how did you evaluate emphasize pricing strategy and what changes have you been think, considering making or in the process of making to pricing?
2: Yeah, I think one thing that was really interesting when we were evaluating um, the acquisition was um, I think pricing really, it, very early pricing decisions really drove a lot of bigger picture strategic product development decisions in the sense, you know, in, in the past, I had released our core product and priced it a certain way, and then felt sort of hamstrung that because that product was priced this way, anything else that we did, we would need to price it, you know, less than and in a similar kind of structure. And the only way to kind of grow in revenue would be create more modules as opposed to just making the core product bigger and and whatnot. And I'm not saying that that was necessarily the totally the wrong way to develop the the product, but it certainly was interesting that how we priced CMS our core product early on actually I think was a big driver of the ultimate decisions that were made so we knew we wanted to we knew we wanted to take a different look at it we ended up moving to a very different pricing model that we actually think is much more advantageous for both FSI and our customers to get the best of our overall product suite and capabilities, we've moved much more to an outcome-based bundled go-to-market strategy and changed some of the price and value metrics from sort of a facility or departmentally oriented to per users. And that's got a lot of... there. There's a lot of important, important drivers there. But I'd say, you know, the two, your product development and your pricing are not distinct they, they they there's a lot of overlap and and they need to be considered together but I don't know that I would necessarily start with price first or certain price constraints and then build your product roadmap based on that we, we've certainly kind of taken a step back and, and rethought about both areas and, and made different decisions than were made in the past and it's been an interesting component of the dynamic and I, quite frankly we're seeing now accelerated, commercial uh success which is translated into accelerated financial success based on i think some of the big big changes that we've made on the pricing and go-to-market strategy side
0: that's fantastic that's cool to hear when you look at different software companies and you're advising searchers what common parts of a pricing strategy are often deficient or missing or could use the most improvement
3: So I don't spend a whole lot of time um, during the diligence on sort of like the market fit and figuring out you know what the market will bear. What I have seen in companies after they've closed for the common pattern is to raise prices. You know we were charging this and now we're going to charge that. And I've actually rarely seen that backfire. You know I've seen a lot of companies historically that were just selling their software for for too little money and companies i i know one company have tripled their prices and they didn't lose a single customer so they were obviously leaving a lot of a lot of money on the table you know it, it depends on sort of like how sassy you are you know if you're a SaaS company and you, know, you have a fairly consistent product across your entire offering and you can offer you know good better best you know that's always great to do we do see a lot of you know a lot of companies that are trying to make the transition to SaaS software and you know some of the businesses that we just walk away from you know the seller comes to us that you know we're SaaS and we want a SaaS multiple and here's how we can price it and you look at it, it's like you're not a SaaS business you're your custom software development shop every one of your customers is a snowflake and you know thinking about like consistent pricing when no two customers have the same set of features doesn't make a whole lot of sense and Some of the deals that, you know, we've walked away from is when the seller wouldn't let go of this idea that they deserve to ask multiple for the product. Yeah, I think that probably the one thing that, that, you know, when you're buying a company, you know, it's like, don't be afraid to, like, go deep on, well, what if we just doubled the price? What if we just tripled the price? Will we lose it? And if, you know, if you're competing on price, that's never, you know, purely on price. That's never a great position to be in to begin with. But again, that's not a side of the businesses that I go that deep on.
0: Yeah, that'll make sense. Moving into closing questions, what strongly held belief have you changed your mind on? And Kevin, maybe we'll start with you.
3: Just on anything?
0: Anything. Yeah. Any, any belief anywhere, ideally business, you know, oriented some way or with some connection, but could be, we've had a lot of personal answers too.
3: Well, I was born in California and grew up always assuming that, you know, in its own imperfect way, the United States was synonymous with democracy and the rule of law, and that always would be. In the last five years, I started to wonder if we always will be a democracy and if our laws are going to apply to everyone. And, you know, that's kind of depressing. And I know this is a business podcast, but, you know, if you can't vote the political class out. And these leaders can invest in stocks, own companies that they're legislating over. If they can skip pa- paying taxes with no oversight, I mean, how do you run a company that competes with that?
2: Yeah, no, I, I was going to say, or I'll say one about sort of my role as CEO, but the, the world around us, there's so many macro elements economically and otherwise that you just were so assured of. And so operating a business in these changing and volatile times is certainly, certainly challenging. I on the CEO or on you know the CEO side uh, in terms of my role one of my biggest learnings has been you know walking into this business I thought you know my chief responsibility was around vision and strategy and and then obviously execution but that that's where my day-to-day focus was going to be on vision and strategy and making sure that we nail that and I'd say I totally feel that what that vision and strategy is, is critical for a successful company my role is really on hiring the best people possible and really focus on culture and you know the organization that we're building so it's it's much it's much more on that organizational dynamics side and making sure that we have the right people to tackle evolving I- industries and macroeconomic challenges and customer needs and all of those types of things
0: What's the best business you've ever seen?
2: I don't know about absolute best, but I will say I serve on the board of a company called Jane Huber Corporation. It's a six generation business and Huber is guided by four what they call Huber principles, which are pretty high level basically values for the business and the amount of time effort resources that go into instilling and reinforcing those principles are, it's astounding, but the impact that it drives the alignment across the organization, it's a, it's a diversified multinational industrial manufacturing and specialty chemical business with, you know, product lines in, in complete, in polar opposites of, of each other. But the alignment around the four Huber principles is so powerful. It's just been a phenomenal lesson in terms of both leadership, but also people leadership and organizational leadership to really focus on the things that the organization believes in and devote the time, effort, resources to reinforcing those. Uh, It'll enable you to accomplish just incredible things.
3: (laughs) I have probably a a pretty cliche and boring answer, but I've always been a pretty big Apple fanboy. And especially the hardware side of the business, you know, the bulk of my Professional career, I've been you know using various Apple devices, and we've just been you know blown away. Certainly, all through the Steve Jobs focused era of like their ability to innovate and so many things that they changed. You know, I, I feel like they're still going pretty strong. I think it's a pretty pretty incredible business. Although, like I said, kind of cliche to throw them out there. I think
0: not cliche at all. There's there's been a few apples, and uh, I know Chick Fil A has been brought up three or four times. Uh, the that's, that's always a good one too. People love that one. Well. Thank you both for coming on the podcast. It's been really good to chat more about software and due diligence. It's it's a topic that we've explored less so on the podcast. And so it's been great to have, have a deep dive with you both today on it. But yeah, thank you for sharing. It's
3: been yeah, fun. thank you. This has been great. Thank you, guys.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood and & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgeman.com slash podcast.